You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This is the second part of a two-part podcast on baseball and espionage with Ryan Zimmerman and Mark Polymeropoulos. The timing is perfect, coinciding as it does with Game 5 of the 2022 World Series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Houston Astros. In this week's episode, we talk about running a baseball counterintelligence operation, moving a runner over in espionage, ethics and integrity, and baseball and spying, and the implications of big data intelligence for baseball and for espionage. Ryan Zimmerman played for the Washington Nationals from 2005 up until 2021, when his number 11 jersey was retired after his departure. He is a 2019 World Series champion. Mark Polymeropoulos is a former CIA operations officer who has received awards such as the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Commendation Medal, and the Intelligence Medal of Merit. He is the author of the 2021 book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Please consider leaving us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. If you're able to spare a minute of your time to write something in the review, it really would make all the hard work we put into every show worth it. That's right, just 60 seconds of your time, or 60 billion nanoseconds, or rather a lot of the smallest unit of time ever measured, zeptoseconds. Enjoy. I wonder if we could just talk about the Nats uh, counterintelligence operation against the Astros. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, supposedly by 2019, the Astros weren't doing this anymore, which you can either believe or not believe. We were going to obviously take the safe way and not believe it. Um, and I played with Aaron Boone, who is now the manager of the Yankees, and they lost that series, you know, to the Astros on that Altuve walk-off home run that was very controversial. About a 100-mile-an-hour fastball from yeah. Chapman, right? And yeah. So, like, I just texted him. I was like, hey, man, like, what do we need to be careful of? And, you know, he's like, listen, just be more careful than you think you need to be, you know? He didn't really give me anything, but he just said, and I'm not going to sit here and say they're doing things, and I obviously don't want to accuse anyone of anything, but when you get to that level, you'd rather just be over-prepared or more careful than you know, look back and be like, ah, we should have done this. So we kind of took that approach. And, you know, it, it probably slowed the game down. It probably wasn't as the, the most efficient way to do things. But we basically just had – it was more just the pitchers and the catchers. And, you know, the catcher would have a wristband 
and they could change set like they and then the the pitcher would have something in his hat that was like a little index card and they had like three or four different sign sets of signs for that inning and then when they got those three outs our video people and upstairs would then print out all new set of signs for the so we had you know nine different sets so like even if they did have a long inning or you know they would switch pretty much every batter like you, I don't know if you go back and look at the video, and still people were were doing that even after. The, like they would, either, you know, they would put one, two, three, or four up, and then the the pitcher would take the hat off and look, and then, you know, a fastball would be a three, and a curveball would be a one, and so you it was almost impossible. Not because they were incredibly complex, there was just they didn't have the time to figure it out and relay it, and then we would switch it. They they probably figure it out, but by the time they figure it out, we were. We're already on to the next one. So it was it was pretty simple. It was almost just changing it so much that we just figured we weren't gonna take the chance. It's like one time pods. Well it is. I mean so this this is some great, you know, CIA tradecraft. So you think about and I'm trying I gotta be careful on what I say here, but this is really old school stuff. So so if you know, if you're gonna make a phone call to trigger an agent meeting. And maybe you have to use an open line to do it, which you never want to do, of course. But but you'd you'd, you'd call a number and and someone would pick up and you'd say something like, you know, I'm going to see you, you know, tomorrow at three o'clock. But but really, what you have pre cooked with your agent is that actually means three days before, or three days after, and six hours you know, four to six hours back, or so. It's something that is just obviously not what is what is kind of said there. Just something with a sign. It's just that the sign doesn't doesn't mean anything because there's kind of preset ways in which you would move forward, you know, the time, place, date of, of, a, of an operational meeting. So it's the exact same. So, and, you know, and again, and the, the simplicity is the beautiful part of it. Yeah. And then you can go the other way now with the technology that's not simple. It's like, you know, these, these teams buy these, there's cameras all around and it's, I forget the name of the program, but it basically watches a picture and, you know, some pitchers do something different when they throw a slider instead of a fastball, but to the naked eye, you wouldn't be able to see it. But these, you know, these new technology, these new programs put, like if Garrett Cole is pitching and he throws a fastball, they they put him on there throwing a fastball. And then for a slider, they put a hologram over him on that same pitch. And it's a lot easier to see a little difference if the hologram's doing something. So like we've even seen like a guy sticks his tongue out when he throws a slider or he has his mouth open and mouth closed. And you wouldn't think that you can see it, but when someone points it out to you and you go up there, usually it's on deck. You'll, they'll be like, Hey, we see this, see if you can see it. Cause if you don't see it, don't. I used to tell him, unless it's really easy, don't tell me because then I'll be like, it's getting in your head. I'm yep, like, totally. I'm yeah. sitting up there and I'm, and then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden I'm like, Oh man, I'm not even paying attention. So it had, I'm, I can't do that stuff. Some people were really good. Daniel Murphy, Unbelievable. Professional hitter. And there. it's just yeah. like they see things that don't like Kyle Hendricks on the on the Cubs. Change up hate facing that guy. Murph knew every time he was throwing a change up and he'd be like, Don't you see it? He like he like puffs his hands or his, and I'm like, Murph. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I, I think he was just making things up in his head. It was like the placebo effect, That's like right. and it was like his thing, but some guys are just amazing at it. And that used to be part of the game. Now they have computer programs that do it for you. And you could say, I mean, is that cheating? Is it not cheating? But, you know, the, the pitcher probably has the same technology as well. So now it's his his turn to fix the mistake. And it's kind of the cat and mouse that used to go on between human beings. And now it's basically going on between AI, which is undefeated. Right. <laughs> right. And that's got a great uh, crossover to your world, right? It used to be spy against spy it used to be mainly human but technology facial recognition sure. uh, surveillance they have all changed the the game that you're involved in can you speak a little bit about that mark right well a little bit maybe yeah just a little <laughs> bit just a little bit no but i mean so you know you know in the past you know you go out for an agent meeting and, and you run a surveillance detection route um but so much has changed now uh you know there's smart cities meaning there's cameras everywhere uh, even when you, you know, transiting airports or there's biometrics, there's facial recognition, um, you know, that, so there's, there's so much out there in terms of technology that makes it much harder to frankly do our core business, which is to meet another human being, an agent uh, on the streets. And so, but you have to figure out ways to beat that. 
And so, you know, just like, you know, so, you know, baseball is evolving. Well, you know, espionage has to evolve as well. And, and one of the things I always kind of point out is that, you know, no matter what, we always have to be able to meet an agent, another human being, someone who's spying for us. That human interaction is really important. It just gets a lot harder, you know, with the advent of, of technology. But, I'll, you know, just like, you know, uh, Major League Baseball teams um, are, are, you know, are using AI, they're hiring data scientists. I'm sure the Nats uh, are advancing that. Same thing with the, you know, the uh, intelligence services all around the world. I mean, data scientists are, are being used um, and they should be. Uh, because again, you know, technology is, is is certainly involving. But you know, on the on the baseball side, it is it is amazing to me, to, you know, kind of the explosion in analytics and how important that is. Sometimes, as a fan, you know, I think there's some intangibles that are lost. Like so, you know, there was a column other day, the other day about Alex Verdugo, the Red Sox, and and whatever it was, they came up with some you know some kind of statistics or something he was doing they didn't like. But you know, he hit 270 and had a pretty good year, and he's he's a great team leader. And that leadership part sometimes I think is missed when you kind of focus on the analytics. And that kind of bugs me as a, as a fan, as someone who studies leadership. But it's here to stay. There's no doubt. You probably have folks, you know, about 20, 25 years old in the analytics shop yeah. um, at, at, uh, at Nats Park. Yeah. The, we call it the Ivy League mafia. That's right. They, uh, they've never played, thrown a pitch. Or, Nothing. Yep. Or, and they're making decisions. And, you know, I'm with you. I think analytics are necessary and it's a great tool. Um, my favorite line that I always tell those guys is baseball isn't played inside of a computer. Um, and they do get really frustrated because you can't put chemistry, leadership, you can't put those into an algorithm. You, you can't value those traits. And they want to be able to value everything because that's what they're, you know, that's how they're built. You know, we're built to play baseball. They're built to assign value and right. and make equations to make, you know, to explain things. Um, you know, my problem with analytics and it, they're useful. I think they're great. I think they make, you know, they're great for players as well. They can, they can teach you things about yourself that you didn't know. Um, but I think it needs to be a hybrid and a combination. I think too many teams, too many managers, um, they basically just use it as a parachute now. You know, they make the decision 100% based on what that says. And right. if it doesn't work out, they say, well, you know, that's what they told me to do. So what do you want me to do? It's like, well, those Not are hum <laughs> human beings. Like, you know, you knowing your players and you knowing who, your job is to put your players in the best chance to succeed, the, the best position to succeed. And sometimes that might not be what the computer tells you to do. And that's your job right. to figure that out. But you need to use the information that they give you to kind of learn your players more and to help also put them in the best. But you have to, I mean, they're human beings, they're not robots. So like as a manager, I think that's the most important job now is to know your players, know who has the best chance to succeed in certain situations. And even if something's telling you to do something, have the stones to, to make a decision. And if it doesn't work out, go in front of the media and say, that was on me. And if it does then your players are going to respect you a lot more than, than they would. Mm. This was really interesting to me, uh, even thinking about the 2019 Nats victory in the World Series. Do you think that part of the reason, besides the counterintelligence uh, operation uh, and the World Series itself, do you think part of the reason that the Nats were successful against the Astros as opposed to, say, the Yankees or the Dodgers, I have a... A friend who's a Dodgers fan and he's still hopping mad about all of this stuff. <laughs> Understandably so. Um, do you think that part of the reason the Nats won is because they were a wild card variable almost? There were, you know, no one expected them, to, you know, even the documentaries called improbable, right? The, the Astros predictions only go so far and, and it, it can't account for every single instance of something that's going to happen. So the Nats come from left field and and you know, I guess the the Astros were at the forefront of this more cold, analytical, objective kind of uh, model of trying to win. But it seems to me that the Nats were almost a an insurgency of chemistry and uh, initiative and these other intangible things that you were speaking about, Ryan. Well, I think you know it's very well known that we had the oldest roster in the league that year, and I think that made it harder because we, the older guys, we have the ability to ch to change quickly. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to bash younger players, but it, base, players are different now than 
20 years ago when I first came up. When, you know, when I came up, if there was a runner on second base and there was nobody out and you weren't like Albert Pujols or something, like if you didn't hit a ground ball to second base and basically give your bat up, like that was that was bad, really bad. Like if, if you if you grounded out to third base or shortstop, like when you came back into the dugout, you can guarantee like a veteran guy was going to be like, hey, man, that's not that's not what we do. Now they tell you, you know, it doesn't matter because, you know, even if you get that guy to third base with one out, the percentage chance of that guy scoring because of the strikeouts and, and all this stuff. Like, so I think to answer the question is we had a bunch of those guys that kind of did those things, the little things. And those little things I don't think are accounted for now in a lot of those algorithms or teams just don't think you're going to do it. And, I mean, you know, you know the ending. It, it, the ending of the story, like, it, it works. It's 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 selfless. I think it, you know, it, it makes everyone work together. Statistically, is it the right or the wrong thing to do? I mean, I think you can make st- statistics say whatever you want to make them say. I think you can make things look good and you can make things look bad. I think that's where analytics and statistics can get people in trouble. You can make them say whatever you want to say. Uh, you can kind of shape or mold, you know, kind of your theory or your hypothesis. If you have enough numbers, you can do whatever you want. So I think, I don't know if they couldn't game plan against us. I just think we had guys that were so dedicated to doing little things, whether it was making it out, whether it was, you know, doing something that really isn't in the game anymore. And those little things, I think, added up and and gave us an advantage. So I, I love that, you know, and, and that kind of that notion of kind of picking your teammates up. You know, I mean, you know, these are your, you know, whatever sport, these are your brothers and sisters in arms. And that's something that I always try to, to, to teach as well. And I would actually use that, that exact example of moving a run over, um, which, which again, doesn't show up in the stat line. Um, but, but it's if not you even have, taught anymore, I don't right. think in baseball. But if you have a selfless team, you know, that's what you do. And, you know, the comparison, I mean, there's so many of them I could, I could think of, but I, but I, I wrote about it in the book. I was in Beirut, Lebanon on an operation. And it was a high high threat operation, and we were meeting someone, and so you know we were we, we needed to have what's called counter surveillance. You know, we had other officers had to be on the street to ensure my safety. And I remember one officer who literally spent you know about seven or eight hours you know on a street corner somewhere just waiting and watching. And afterwards, when we you know met up uh, you know for a, for a beer when it was all was all done, I said you know I was like you know hey man that was that was awesome thank you. And he's like, come on that's what we do. I mean it's just that's just part of the job. And and it, when you when you start you know when you start having or experiencing teams like that, you understand kind of that that uh, that notion of being selfless. Yeah. Um, again, they're not the superstars. They're not getting any of the credits. They're not going to be in the headlines. Um, I ran the op. I collected the intelligence. Washington's happy. The station chief's happy. But you know that that you know that officer who did counter surveillance the whole time deserves just as much credit. It's just the same idea of of moving a runner over. And and you know going back to what Ryan said before, I mean I think that Davey was an old school manager, um, and you had you know players like Max and others who just you know. They want the ball. And so it doesn't matter what the stats say. You know, do you want to put those guys out in the field, uh, at, you know, at, at crunch times, yourself included? I mean, so, so, you know, same kind of thing. Um, and you just have that, that gut, that instinctive feel that, that analytics won't, won't tell you about. Yeah, I remember too, I'm try, trying to remember which player it was. It was when I was younger, so, you know, 13, 14 years ago. I was listening to some guy talk to reporters, and he said, oh, you know, you went two for four with two RBIs, good game. And then, there was a veteran guy next to him and he was like, no, he had two and a half RBIs. And like the, the reporters are like, what, what the hell are you talking about? Two and a half RBIs. He goes, well, with nobody out, you know, one of his outs, he ground out to second base and then the guy behind him hit a sack fly. So he was like, we used to say that's a half RBI because that sack fly wouldn't have mattered unless you got that guy to third. So, you know, could that guy maybe got a hit and scored the run anyway? But yeah, but the sense of doing something for the person behind you, it, it just builds that that chemistry that might not show up in like one day or in April or in May, but like in September. If you do that for six months, I think it builds and builds and builds, and th- and that's where you get like kind of that chemistry and that cohesiveness. And one one quick thing, and you'll see, and Ryan certainly practiced this, but you'll see, and, and baseball fans, true fans, will see it. You know that happens. Everyone's up on the dugout steps mm-hmm. when that when you know when that guy moved the runner over is coming off. He made an out. He's 0 for 1, 0 for 2, but everyone's up on the steps because they understand what they did. And that's, you know, that, you know, people understand the game. People understand that notion of selflessness. 
uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's pretty clear, but I'm sure that that's what you did all the time when, when, and that, and, and, and to, to kind of bolster that notion of a, of a true team, you have to celebrate those plays as well. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Just as a student of leadership, Mark, what's your view on analytics numbers? So just thinking about your book, Clarity and Crisis, which I think when we discussed it last year, you said in some ways is a baseball book as much as, as much as anything else. But it's also a book about leadership and the leadership skills that you learned over the years in CIA. Like, where do you see numbers and analytics? Because it seems to me that a lot of leaders these days especially you know it's this notion that you can crunch the numbers on the way to success and i'm not saying that they don't play a part but just what's your view on how numbers and analytics fit into the package of leadership you know so i mean of course you know you're always looking for ways to kind of measure effectiveness so i get it it's necessary you you do have to measure statistics in baseball you have to you know, uh, you know, measure the impact of a CIA station. So, for example, you know, how many of our, the, the, the intelligence reports that we've collected have made it into the president's daily brief? Um, but then, there, you know, again, there are also other kind of intangibles. And so, for example, you know, so, so if we see a pending conflict coming and we have to recruit a safe house, maybe behind enemy lines for a down pilot, you know, that, that, that's no, no intelligence is coming out of that. But that's still a critical core function of what we do. And, 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 and perhaps down the line, it's going to save someone's life. But you don't get credit for it. There's no number that gets you gets you credit for it. And then, kind of the other piece too is, you know, in the in the in the age now of kind of this explosion in open source information, you know, the the you know the clandestine world has changed. But um, it's not the it's not the quantity; it's the quality of our of our agents of our sources. So, you know, do, you know, do we need you know a hundred you know Russians sitting on the street corner telling us what's happening in Moscow? No, we need a penetration of Vladimir Putin's inner circle. Um, now that CIA station might not, you know, get a ton of credit for numbers in terms of recruitments, uh, but it, what about the quality? And so that, to me, you know, I, as a as a manager in a station, you always had to kind of kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive because numbers don't tell you anything. And and, and you know, the, the, there's there's kind of famous stories in CIA lore. I think McKinsey came in and did kind of a reorganization of CIA and. And all we could hear after that is all these business, you know, school terms of MOEs, measures of effectiveness. I, I don't know how you measure that kind of stuff, and it it drove kind of a lot of the old timers like me kind of crazy. Um, again, not you. And so, so it's not you don't have free reign to do nothing. You do have to have some way of measuring the performance of a of, a, of an operational outfit. But I think sometimes there's definitely too much. Um, uh, and then and there's also you know that again for for a baseball veteran or, or a veteran manager, you have a feel for something. You know, that, that's really important. You know, your gut, your feel based on experience. Um, but ultimately, the, uh, you know, analytics can tell us one piece, but, but certainly not everything. It's interesting to me as well that baseball teams now, a lot of them have a director of advanced information or sports information director. And there's another way to call, to, to term that stuff in your former role, Mark, which is intelligence, right? Um, trying to predict what's coming over the horizon, trying to figure out what other countries are going to do, adversaries, friends, etc. So it's really, really interesting to me now the ways in which baseball teams and the CIA collect information, they bring all the information together, and then they try to analyze it to use it. Um, so in both of those respects, there's a, a lot of similarity as well. And I think that's that's really really interesting that that fusion. Have you thought about that a bit more? I think Ryan should bring me on in the Nats as a uh, <laughs> as a consultant. Um, I mean, again, it's it's you're always trying to get ahead of your your the adversary, your opponent, and, and you know this is this is certainly one way to uh, to to do it. And so again, the explosion of of you know AI or artificial intelligence, the explosion of of you know data science and analytics. I mean, there's a lot you can learn from these. I think we've been talking about how it's not everything, but. Um, you know, a baseball team would be remiss in not doing this. I mean, you have to have these parts of, of the organization. 
Um, again, because uh, you know, it's just it's 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 a way to get ahead. And and one of the things that I wanted to discuss next was like in the CIA, you have an inspector general if people are doing something wrong or there's something needs to be investigated. And then in baseball, you have the commissioner and a commissioner's report and stuff. So I don't want to get too into blaming individual people or whatever, but it's quite interesting to me if you look at some of the cases. So let's call it what it was, cyber espionage, Chris Correa um, from the Cardinals uh, hacks into the, uh, the Astros computer in 2017, has a look at their Excel spreadsheets on their potential draft picks. And he uses the password of a former colleague who now works for the Astros. So to me, it's wrong that he did it. It's not what you should do, but to use an old colleague's password, okay, like we can we can think about that. But then with the Astros, you've got you've got uh, Lucknow, Korea, uh, Hinch, uh, Beltran. You've got all of the players that came through that system, and um, you've got one of them, one of them that eventually. Uh, blows the whistle on the whole operation but or you've got systemic failure where people are not doing anything versus one guy who uses a password of an old colleague and looks through a spreadsheet that's only going to affect some draft picks um, he gets 46 months inside but yet you have all of these people that, that, that they've probably um, ruined people's careers or are or, or taking money out of people's pockets or as we're speaking about earlier, they've basically cheated fans, they've cheated players, they've cheated other teams, they've cheated the game itself. But yeah, there's like, oh, here, here's a ban and now we've got some of them as managers. So that's a long-winded way of saying what's going on here. One guy, some dorky ex-PhD student goes in, takes an Excel spreadsheet, gets some information about some draft picks, gets 46 months inside and then you've got an entire operation that's systemically involved in cheating everybody involved in the sport except their own team. But it's, you know, nothing much seems to happen. Yeah. I think the simple answer is because when players are involved, they get protected. And if you look at who really got, I mean, the managers are the ones who really got, besides, you know, obviously the password stealing, you know, that's more front office, things like that. So, but I mean... Our union, too, it's a gift and a curse because it's it's a very strong. It's probably one of the strongest unions in the country. I mean, certainly labor unions around. So we kind of, to a fault, protect our players. And that was actually, you know, when all this was going on, some players questioned why we were protecting these guys. We said, hey, these guys will talk to the commissioner. They'll talk as long as they basically get immunity, which, you know, he probably knows about. <laughs> you know, he does a lot more of that uh, negotiating <laughs> with, with immunity and things like that. Uh, but, you know, when all that was going on, I think there was some people who said, why are we protecting these guys, you know? But it is technically the union's job to protect them. Um, so the, the simple question is that's why they didn't get in trouble more. And also... If they wouldn't have said we won't do anything, then those players probably would never would have talked, and then nobody would have gotten in trouble. So I think the commissioner and, and MLB kind of had to make that decision of do we really want to get to the bottom of it, but the players kind of get a free ride, or do we just kind of? And I think for public optics, they had they were they had no choice, and I think that's why we knew they had no choice. They had to get the information, and we used it to our advantage to protect our players. But that being said, I. It definitely wasn't unanimous among all the other people and the other players in the union that we should protect these guys. But it gets tricky. You can't pick and choose when you want to protect. Like your the goal is to protect those players. And but I'm with you. I mean, if if you cheat, and I've I've said all along, if you know, and I I don't like blaming AJ Hinge. I don't like blaming the GM there. But you know, I've met AJ, and nice guy. Like. But the fact that they said they didn't know this stuff was going on, there's no chance that you didn't know what was going on. And even if you did, all you had to do one time is just call a meeting and just be like, hey, guys, MLB just called you know, me and the GM, and they said, hey, we know what's going on. If you guys stop now, completely stop, we won't do anything. We'll, you know, but this can't happen in the game. If you do it again, big trouble. Even if... 
MLB never called. That's all AJ Hinch would have had to say. Just have one meeting like that, and then the players would be like, "Oh, sh-, like it would," mm-hmm. and it would have been over. Like, so I think you said systematic failure in leadership is a lot of players. I mean, it's it's cutthroat to be in the big leagues, and like you said, unfortunately, some players probably lost jobs, lost money, but some of those players use that information and maybe signed a contract, like. There's two ways to look at it, and there's good people and there's bad people, and you can take it all the way back to the steroid. Barry Bonds always, you know, he's never been. There's no proof that, but you know, Barry Bonds was basically the best player in the game, and then all these guys really started using that stuff and basically closed the gap. And he had the mental confusion of, well, should I let these guys close the gap, or should I do what they're doing? And then why? Like, so you, I think you get that inner struggle as a player too, whether you should take advantage of it. And it comes down to basically your moral compass, I guess. And it's a lot easier for someone who is a star player or has a contract already to take the high, the high road. Oh yeah. Don't worry about that. But like the, the 25th guy that's going up and down from AAA, that's got three kids and this is his only skill. I mean, that's a tough, I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Like, do you want to know when fastball is coming? And maybe you're in the big leagues for two more years and you make an extra 1.5 million bucks. Like it's, it sounds like an easy decision. Like everyone's like, Oh yeah, there's no way I would do that. But then you sit back and think about it for a second. You're like, it's a lot harder than you think. It's a lot, it's not an easy decision for those guys. It seems to me it's also similar to the world that you were in Mark, where you know, there's a strong sense of, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a strong sense of within the institution amongst your teammates or amongst your colleagues who are also in the business, you're meant to strictly walk a, an ethical and a moral line. But when you're doing the job, then, you know, you do what you need to do the job, but there's still a certain internal standard. But there must also be, if you fabricate, or, or you make up a source or, or you just make yourself look better and you get your name known and you get promoted and so forth. I mean, there's always a temptation to just like give a story a little extra 5% or 10%. And then it, there's obviously a spectrum where people just start fabricating things. So yeah. like, yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's also a line. I mean, I guess it's a line that everybody walks, but it's more, you know, it's more acute in particular professions, but in your profession, can you speak a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, so so you think about the job or the role of a, of a uh, CIA case officer, an operations officer. So we go out on our own to meet an agent. And so I'm sitting in the car in XYZ country and no one else is with me. There's no recording device. And this agent, has, he's not handing us documents. He's too scared to, but he's telling us what President Xi of China or Vladimir Putin or the Iranian regime is going to do. And it's it's verbal it's a verbal report and I have to go back and I have to, you know, I have to, or I'm taking notes there, but it's all based on my integrity, what I'm writing. Now, if I write what that report or what that agent is saying, maybe it's something that's not, boring is the wrong word, but no, nothing has changed in that country's policy. What if I embellish it a little bit? Well, it's going to get attention back home. And, and so you can see how there's that temptation. So the idea of honesty and integrity is so absolutely critical because it's such a unique job in which you are one-on-one with someone who is providing information that you could conceivably change U.S. policy. And so you have to have that, that kind of, you know, that moral and ethical streak. And of course, it's ironic we're talking about the CIA here. So we steal other people's secrets. We do kind of nasty things <laughs> to other countries, but we, but we have to have that, um, you know, that, uh, that, that notion of, uh, of, of being, you know, pure as a driven snow when it comes to this. Um, and it's really important. And there's been times over the years where people have gotten caught embellishing. Because why? It's the same thing. Because they're going to get, you know, maybe some praise, maybe get promoted. Um, very easy to do and, and not always easy to get caught. I mean, this sounds like the old, you know, the uh, PED issue, performance yeah. enhancing drug uh, uh, issue. Um, going back to what you asked Ryan before, though, I think one of the, it's interesting as a baseball fan, you know, there is no position. I, I'm trying to think of something more controversial as a, as a job than commissioner of baseball, where you have a very difficult job. People are mad at you constantly on things. And so, um, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it really is kind of that, that tough line on, on, on where to go on so many of these issues. And you're not going to satisfy uh, uh, everybody. We just saw Aaron Judge, you know, break a record. Well, sort of, yes, definitely American League, you know, but, but the record, the overall home run record, I don't know. And people have, you know, are, are, have, you know, very strong views on what's your, what is your view on that? <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 
know, it's so tough because, and I have this conversation with, you know, a lot of my friends and, you know, I think any record, the game is so different now. Take out the PED argument, just like the, the hit streak will never be broken. The, like you just, you don't, you face the same pitcher maybe twice in a game if you're lucky. So like the game is so different now. So 62 home runs right now is unbelievable. Like, I don't even know what the next closest guy was. Was it 40? Right, yeah. Might have been so, Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, it was 40. 40, 40 yeah. He had 42. Right. 40, like, I mean, if you get to 40 now, that's basically like 60. This guy got to 60. <laughs> like, so, I mean, it's almost like, I think, I mean, it's hard to take records away. I right. mean, you know, it. Do you put an asterisk there? I mean, what do you, what yeah, do, you do for that, the record books? You know, that was the times. Right, yeah. Like, it, it's so hard. And, and, you know, I have my really good friends at home that I grew up playing baseball with and like, you know, their dads and we get into these generational talks and I'm like, guys, it's impossible right. to, to compare generations. Um, you know, how many home runs of those 72 did he hit off of guys using steroids? No one ever asked that question. Like how many pitchers were you like, so do those count? Cause that's a level right. playing field. Like you just can't, there's no right answer, but I think what Aaron, I mean, Aaron Judge is doing like, if you look at the frequency of over 62 home runs, those four or five years, I mean, what Sosa did it three times. McGuire. McGuire. Yep. Bond, like, those all happened within, like... <laughs> right. There's a commonality five, amongst all them. Yeah. Five right. or yeah. six years, I believe. Right. And other than that, like, 60 home runs happened three, two, two right. other times. Right. I, Ruth hit 60, then Mar- Maris, 61. Yeah. So, like, just by pure... Just by the eye test, you would think something was going on during those five years. Right. But it is, should you take it away? I, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I know the the answer I do know is that what Aaron Judge did this year is ridiculous. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, he could do it. He's probably the only, I mean, he is so, I mean, he's a tight end playing right. baseball. And yeah. he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. So it makes you, makes you feel better. And he's going to, he's going to get paid. He bet on himself. <laughs> it's going to get his paid. He Extraordinary, he did. Yeah, um, he t- yeah. He he took a chance on himself and uh, amazing. Probably worked out okay. Yeah. For him. <laughs> Moving on to baseball now, uh, I wanted to ask both of you: A, who do you want to win the World Series, and B, who do you think will win the World Series? And it obviously could be the both of them could be the same thing. But who do you want to win the World Series, and who do you think will win the World Series? So who do I want? So this is like a tricky question for me because we spent this whole time talking about the Astros. Um, I love Dusty Baker. I think he's a great human being. He's done so much for the game of baseball as a player, as a manager, and just as a person. I really want him to win a World Series. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the stuff that's been put in place, a lot of the people on that Houston Astros team were not affiliated at all. So, like... At some point, you have to turn the page, right? Like, I think, like, the Yankees people, it's harder for them to turn the page. I mean, we if we would have lost in 2019, I think I maybe would be talking a little differently. <laughs> um, but, you know, I really want Dusty to win the World Series. I think it'd be great for baseball. I think it'd be good for him. Who do I think is going to win? I mean, the Dodgers have created a machine. I mean, they're basically the perfect combination of the analytics with somewhat of the old school gut feeling managing humans instead of just, I mean, they still let numbers make a lot of their decisions. And then they also just have unlimited bankroll. So you basically took Friedman from the Rays, who was like not the inventor of all this, but probably the best at it. And then put them on the team with an unlimited bankroll. So they get all the great, analytic players and the role players that can help and they can put in the right situations and then they go sign Mookie Betts and have Trey Turner and you know the, the, those guys are like analytic proof they just play every day and they're going to be unbelievable so for me like the Padres are good and I think the five game series is a huge advantage for the Padres if it was seven if every game was every round was seven I don't think anyone would beat the Dodgers I just think seven games it's hard to to win four. You know, it seems like, oh, well, it's only three. Like, it's just a lot of things can happen. You, 
the other the Padres can use their pitchers more. That you know, you know, the seven games makes you it it exposes your depth. Five games not as much. So I I want Dusty and the Astros to win. <laughs> I think the Dodgers will win. They're a juggernaut, aren't they? They're just the perfect combination of of payroll and analytics done the right way. Drafting. I mean, they do it. They they spend as much as you can possibly spend on every aspect in it, and it shows. I think we spoke about the Trey Turner move in last year's podcast. Oh, I'm still I devastated. It, I said it broke yeah. my heart, and you said that your, totally. your protest didn't go to a game for a month. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> he was I was my... so upset. I mean, it's so, it's so, and when you think about, you know, so again, as a fan, um, uh, you know, you look to to players on the various teams now who you followed, who you liked, who you respected. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, seeing the Padres win was great because you have, you know, Juan and, and Josh Bell and, you know, Josh Bell who had a tough, tough season when he wouldn't moved over. But, but you know, all of a sudden he might end up being a, a, a really big contributor. So, um, and of course, uh, uh, you know, Ryan knows these folks, but for all, all intents, I mean, for all we see as a fan, Josh Bell, he was great as a Nat for, oh. in terms of the community. Um, and so I like I like seeing them, you know. One player who I've who I've, who I've enjoyed and I think is just kind of a, a, a kind of a warhorse is uh, is Kyle Schwarber. So it's hard to root for the Phillies only because the, when the Philly fans come to Washington, it's nothing more annoying than sitting in the stands <laughs> with them. But but Kyle Schwarber is a is a is a heck of a player. So it's fun to see him um, succeed. And and you know it, 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 I think the Yankees have, have got a heck of a team. And so that's going to be uh, they're, they're going to be hard to beat. And then of course you know I, I love you know. Uh, uh, Terry Francona, the manager of the of the Guardians, again, you know, like like a Dusty Baker, just really great, um, you know, uh, baseball minds and baseball figures. I, I'll tell you one thing: it, there's no more fun time than the playoffs, where you go home and there's two or three games on, um, aside for some rainouts. I mean, there's just and and the baseball has been really compelling. You know, there there was something I, I don't know where it started that this notion over the last year or two on social media that baseball was boring. I don't get that because I don't think it is at all. I think the game is in, it seems to me that the game is in, in great shape. Um, oh, on that note, I wanted to ask you about the rule changes. What yeah. do you think of those, the rules? But, but, the, well, but again, the notion of- is boring because people can't pay attention for 10 seconds. Right, for anything, six yeah. Six months, that's, that's, that's what we've created. <laughs> right. This is our own- It's, it's society. This is our it's, own yeah. problem. We, that's right. We've created this problem. Um, but yeah, the rule changes. Um, also, Francona, um, two of my really good buddies that I played with at UVA are now with the Guardians high up in like their front office. And- they say it's the best work environment. Amazing. Like the communication, oh, yeah. the trust, the the honest, like the the teamwork, and it shows. They're another one of those teams that can't spend a ton of money. They're in the playoffs every year. Right. They draft unbelievably, and then they develop the people that they draft. Um, but great organization. Um, rule changes. I mean, I think a lot of the rule changes. Honestly, you won't even know. Like the pitch clock thing, everyone's making a big deal about. Whatever. I think after the first two weeks. There's not even that many pitchers or hitters that will have a problem with that pitch clock. And honestly, some of the pitchers and some of the hitters that take too long, I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I might you know, I might piss off some purists and some things like that, but like you know, when Robinson Cano would take like a minute in between each pitch, like, like oh, I love Robbie, great hitter, you know, unbelievable person to watch, but like can we just get in the box, man? Like you know, it's just so that like the let's see other ones the bigger bases. I I don't think you'll notice. Um, you know, the shift I would argue is probably the the biggest one that people are optically obviously will be the biggest one. But I sort of agree with it. I think I think you know I think the rule states you can't have more than two people on either side of second base. I think it should just be the infielders can play wherever they want. They just have to be on the dirt. That's what an infielder is. Like, and my argument with the whole putting the third baseman or the second baseman out in like short right field is like what people don't really understand is like now the right fielder, the right fielder is not going to play on the other side closer to the line. So, what the analytics tells you is if like the double down the right field line, nobody's catching that ball anyway. So, you might as well just give that up. So, like, if you put the second baseman or the, sh the third baseman in short right field, now your right fielder can go basically to right center. Your center fielder now goes to left center. And then your left fielder, who's usually the worst defensive player and just hits homer, 
basically just has to cover a sliver of the outfield. So you're making it so hard to get hits. Like you, you found the cheat code. Right. You're you're giving up the right field line because those balls aren't caught anyway. What used to be a single is now caught. And then oh by the way, like the line drive, if you have a good second baseman, like Manny Machado is unbelievable. I, like it's basically a fourth outfielder, and you get ground. Like so, I just don't think that's the game of baseball. I think if if you wanted to put three guys on the right side of second base and they're on the dirt, you should be able to do that. But putting someone in like that rover position in the outfield is. I don't think that's how the game was meant to be played. And just uh, moving on to the final part of our conversation, uh, I wondered if you could both uh, tell us, obviously in your case, Mark, you may not be able to tell us a name, but is there someone that you have worked with respectively in your professions that you're like, wow, I'm, I'm so blessed to have played alongside this person? Or just is there someone that you were just like, you felt really grateful to to play alongside or to be alongside? Well, there, there certainly was for me. I mean, I, and I actually, I, I can talk about it. He's passed away now. His name is Charlie Seidel. And I talk about it in the book. I call him Charlie. But, you know, when I go through the kind of the publication review process, the agency lets me talk about him. But he was, you know, he, he was the one of these legendary, what we call them, Arabists, someone who has spent their entire career in the Middle East, spoke beautiful Arabic, um, grew up in the region. Uh, and, and so he was really a true expert. But what set him apart was his, his willingness and ability to mentor uh, officers, you know, he recently received uh, in uh, after he was passed away, his his family received it. You know, a fairly prestigious award from the agency. Um, and what was interesting, as and I was in, I was invited back to headquarters, and I went to the award ceremony. What was interesting is really the entire leadership of the directorate operations, one point or the other, had been mentored by Charlie. And so that, to me, you know, personified what a great leader is about. So Charlie's exploits in the field were legendary, but no one remembers what he did. But you know what? They, they they certainly remember that he kind of you know he mentored and he groomed the next uh, you know generation of officers, and so so that that notion of passing the torch, and and a great story about Charlie. I was you know I was in Iraq. Uh, you know him and I went you know in with the invasion in two thousand three. I was we were I was co-located with the naval special warfare units, and we were if you remember the the Saddam Hussein's deck of fifty five cards. So we were we were catching high value targets, including many of those. Um, it was an in, you know incredible uh, operational run for me. It was one of those times where I had, had a lot of success. Um, I received a very prestigious uh, 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 intelligence medal from that. But when I came back after half a year, I had something was not right, and I had a pretty bad case of uh, PTS of post traumatic stress, and I wasn't sleeping well. I was seeing it, my wife was really concerned about my well being, and she called Charlie, who was obviously alive at the time, and he had returned also as from the, as the, the job of chief of station. And he, re, he, he gathered the entire old Baghdad team who all went in on that first you know, infill. Uh, and he had a house in, in Cape Cod in Massachusetts and he brought everybody there. Everyone rented houses and we recreated that bond, you know, that brotherhood that you're very familiar with you know, it, it, from teams. And, but the families were all there. And so that, that kind of helped my process in healing. And so, you know, I, again, I look, Charlie was always an inspiration to me, you know, not only because of his genius as an intelligence officer, but he got that, that notion of taking care of his uh, the men and women on his command, and, and just that that notion of mentorship. There's nothing to me more, you know, more important as a as a leader than kind of passing the torch to the next generation. Whether it's next generation of players, you know, I've Ryan, I've heard a lot from, you know, from players who played, you know, rookies who played under you, you know, you know, Juan or or anyone else. The importance that you meant to them, that's your legacy, and that to me is, uh, uh, you know, was that that's what Charlie certainly personified. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's kind of. You know, there's so many people. I almost break it up into when I the first five years or so where you, you come up and you literally like try to just not say anything, not be seen. <laughs> like those guys were Brian Schneider, Nick Johnson. Um, you know, those guys taught me how to be professional. I mean, Frank Robinson being my first manager. I mean, you know, terrifying. But then the amount of knowledge I got from him in such a short time, how to carry yourself how to represent the, you know, the organization, how to do things the right way on a daily basis. I was 20 years old. I turned 21 that September. Like to have that knowledge from, from guys like Frank and Nick and, and Brian, you know, that's kind of like the first step in my career of learning how to be a professional. And I, I don't think you don't like leaders. They just become leader. People who say they're a leader usually, usually aren't leaders. So that's what I've learned. And the, People who talk the most usually aren't leaders as well. So I think I sat back and watched a lot of those guys for the first five or six years. And then sort of the middle part of my career, I sort of, I don't want to say found my voice, but I was always like a lead by example person. And 
you know, those years it was, you know, Ian Desmond and Adam LaRoche and um, Austin Kearns, Adam Dunn, those kind of people. Um, Ian was the guy that I really, you know, he came up after me and was younger than me, but then I think he sort of matured into one of the best leaders I've ever seen. And nobody really thinks of him that way, but he was, he was a big time voice and, and leader in that clubhouse for those teams where we like kind of started taking that step forward. And then, you know, obviously the last part of my career where you become that guy, but being able to watch guys like Howie Kendrick, Max Scherzer go about his business um, and just watch Anibal Sanchez, Gerardo Parra, like watch them talk to other people. Cause it's, you have to learn how to talk to other people. You have to learn when to like, I don't want to say take chances, but when to maybe be a little bit more confrontational because some guys can't handle it. Some guys, And I don't mean like, yeah, but like telling someone they're doing something wrong. You have to kind of know which ones can take the constructive criticism, which can't. <laughs> you know, a story about Ian, I'll never forget it. You know, Ian had become, a you know, I mean, he was a great shortstop, silver slugger, you know, one of the, one of the most athletic people I've ever seen. And... I won't name the person, but a certain person didn't run out a ground ball. Super, a star player, and didn't get taken out of the game. You know, we lost the game. And I'll never forget, he went into the manager's office and he said, don't put me in the lineup tomorrow. And the guy's like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, if you let that guy get away with that, then I don't want to be a part of it. And he's like, oh, whatever. So he came in the next day and he was in the lineup and he took the line. He said, I'm not playing. I'm not doing it. I'm not playing. And like eventually Riz, Riz came down. He's like, hey, man, you're, you're <laughs> you playing. Play. <laughs> but that person, they called him in the office and like at the time, obviously they're you know, shouting. I mean, this this is normal. This happens five or six times a year. So it's not like anyone hated each other. You know, I think down the road, that person that, Ian kind of like, I'm going to say called out, but I bet you, like, if you ask him about the story, he probably respects Ian for doing it. And like that kind of stuff is not the easy stuff to do where you take a stand and sometimes you put yourself out there. But watching him do that, like, didn't make me want to do that, but made me have more confidence to like go talk to people and be like, hey, man, if, if you don't do this, then it's okay for everyone to do it. And, you know, that's that was one thing Dusty always said, too. He would call like the four or five like main guys on the team in spring training he goes, Hey guys, we're not going to have a bunch of team meetings, but like once or twice during the year, I'm just going to like yell at you guys. And he was like, don't worry about it. I don't mean anything. Like you guys could be doing great and you guys could have gone three for four. He goes, but if I can yell at you in front of everybody, then I can yell at everybody in front of everybody. He's like, you got to be my guys and we'll work together. And if we want to win, this is how it's going to have to work. And if you're honest, like that's what. So I, I feel like when you're looked at it that as that player, if you almost have to hold yourself at a higher standard because if you do it, the other people have no choice. That's kind of my thoughts on on leadership. Is there's more pressure on you to be on every day, but that's you know if you're the guy, that's that's your job. And taking advantage of both of you because. Both of you had very long, successful careers and your respective professions. And there will be people out there that look up to you or say, that's who I want to be. So if you could give a piece of advice to someone that's trying to um, make it into the major leagues or trying to, maybe it's someone that's in there already who wants to have a successful career like you or someone who's just joined the CIA or who's trying to join the CIA uh, to become a case officer or another officer, what piece of advice would you give to both of them based on both having long, successful careers yourselves? I mean, for me, it was always that nothing's given, everything's earned. It's just hard work. It's the grind. Um, you know, everyone wants to, to join the CIA and then, you know, become a station chief. Um, but it's, but it's, it's really, you have, to, you have to earn everything uh, in, my old, in my old profession, including respect um, from others. But, but the great thing about that is that it's all, that's everything that you can control. And so it's the amount of work you put in. It's how you can, you know, comport yourself. It's honesty, integrity. Um, and so there, there's a comfort in that, in that you actually do have some control uh, uh, on that. And it's, uh, but it's, but it's the idea of nothing, nothing's going to be given to you. I would agree with that. Um, my advice is 
to all these young younger kids that are like, listen more than you talk. I think everyone has the answers now. <laughs> and like, I'm not saying I have the answers, but like, listen and, and step outside of your comfort zone and maybe listen or talk to someone that you don't agree with or you don't think has something that you, of, of worth to you. Because I think a lot of the times the, the people that you're most hesitant to talk to, even if they have a different view of something or don't agree with you on something, like those are the people you learn the most from. Like the people that you always are comfortable talking to, 99 out of 100 times agree and have the same. Like you're not learning any; you're just affirming what you what you already know, which right. is satisfying. So it's easy to do that. But like, you know, take a chance, go outside your box, listen to people, and like, don't just watch them while they talk to you. Actually, like, listen to them and then ask questions. I think, you know, these young like. Asking questions, especially in baseball, it's similar to, you know, see, like there's so much information in front of you. Like if you just pay attention, like we talk about sign stealing, we talk about, you know, watch the game. That's what I would tell it. Like some of these guys who aren't playing or, you know, they sit, they don't watch the game. Like even if you're not playing, there's so much you can learn. And I just think you always have to want to learn and, and listening to me. And I've learned as I've gotten older to listen to people maybe I don't agree with or or take a meeting or take a, you know, a lunch or go, go listen to someone speak that you have nothing in common with. That's, that's, I try to do that now or listen to a <laughs> podcast or, or read a book with someone who you completely disagree with. And at the end of the book, you might still completely, right. or they might have something in there where you're like, you know what? I, I, you know, I've never thought about that. And, and you be, that's the only way to become a better person. And this goes back to something you've spoke about before, Mark, um, in the long run, you'll never, you'll never defeat, can't get beyond the game and let you, you just have to respect the process and respect the game because in the long run, you'll never beat it. Like if you're sloppy with your tradecraft, eventually you get found out. There's no short circuit to becoming a successful baseball player. It's, it's the grind. It's all the, that famous Muhammad Ali quote, the fight's already lost their one when you see me dancing under the lights. You know, it's all been done in the training room. Yeah, it's all right. the, is all the stuff that you've never seen and probably never will see. Uh, that's what that's what makes success, which I think is quite interesting. Just to be playful, just as we wind up here, uh, Mark, I thought it would be interesting to ask if you could map the CIA, the FBI, the National Security Agency onto baseball teams, which would each one of them be? Oh my God, what a question. <laughs> would, wow. would, would one of them be the Yankees? Would one of them be the Dodgers? So, one so of them be what, the... I, what I like doing actually, so that, that's, I, I have to think about that one, but what I always joke about is, you know, you, you, let's let's do like the United States and our adversaries. So, you know, the Yankees are the evil empire. So, you know, the Yankees, the old, what, the old Soviet Union or now Russia, I don't know. <laughs> and, who, you know, who are the good, you know, what, what's Ukraine, kind of the little underdog, who's that? You know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's uh, one of the teams that is uh, kind of snuck into the playoffs. But, but you know, the, the, it, it's running, you actually see it on social media a lot. People do lo love kind of making these comparisons. Um, you know, what is, you know, the FBI is always seen as these, you know, uh, you know uh, great Americans, but, you know, wearing, you know, the fancy suit. Um, as the you know the old G-men, the federal agents, the CIA. I, I always joked around that you know uh, the you know I'd, I'd wear kind of jeans and a and, and a shirt anywhere. Um, I remember I was I was overseas in an embassy one time, um, and the ambassador was calling a meeting, and I was I was not the station chief. I was actually the number three there, but for whatever reason, uh, you know they weren't able to uh, attend the meeting, and it was it was actually it was in the Gulf, and it was about 130 degrees out. So that day I wore I wore literally shorts, flip flops, and a t-shirt. And this is really not what you do. And I, then I had to go up and see the ambassador, and I'm like, oh god. And I walked up there, and I kind of, and, and this where the CIA station chief would sit in these what you call a country team meeting is next to the ambassador. Everyone else is in a suit. The State Department, very buttoned up, polished. <laughs> I'm in flip flops, and I'm like, at this point, I'm like, well, f it, I'm just going. This is going to be fun. And the ambassador looked at me, and he just, and he's, he's looking at me, and, and of course, the State Department folks were kind of were like, oh, Mark's going to get in trouble. And the ambassador just smiled, and he just kind of shaking his head, thinking, you CIA guys. Um, you know, it was okay. It worked out. So I don't know. I think, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, we, are, are we dress a little more casually <laughs> for, uh, for the agency. But we're on the street all the time. That's what you're supposed to do. Just to bring it all to a head now, I was just wondering if I could ask you both again at the end of long, very successful careers, do you just go back to the, the scene of the crime, so to speak, very often? Uh, do you go back to Nationals Park? Do you go back to Langley? How does that make you feel? Is it I had a good time or are you like, God, I just 
wish I could be back. I mean, so I just wondered, what's your relationship like with your former profession and with the scene of the crime? Yeah, I mean, I definitely still, baseball will always be, I think, a part of kind of who I am. I mean, I'm I'm going to have to find something else as well. I just can't do that for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, I'm 38, so I have the weird, you know, retirement of at 38. I mean, I have a, hopefully a lot of years <laughs> left of, <laughs> of uh, you know, production in, in many aspects of my life. Um, you know, it, I miss playing. I don't miss having to do this stuff every day. My body, it was, it, it was the right time for me. Um, but mentally, like being involved in the game of baseball, helping the organization continue to become one of the better organizations, I think I have a lot of value for them. And this year we had our, our fourth kid, so it's been busy. Um, so this year was kind of a wash being at home. It's a um, you know, blessing to be at home and help help with the four kids. And, you know, once they get a little bit older and they're in school, and I definitely can see myself moving into kind of a hybrid role about, you know, being around the players, being there to talk to the young guys, being in that environment, but still having their trust and doing stuff with the front office. We've, you know, over the last five or 10 years, this, the relationship between players and, and organization has become so toxic and divisive. And, you know, I think some of it's warranted, but I think most of it is just, it's kind of just been put into us. And it, I, I have the the feeling that if we were to work together, everyone would be more successful. And I don't think a lot of teams have anyone that that could do that so if i could do that for the nationals i think it would give us an advantage you know if if you're working together if if the players actually want to play for their front office because the front office actually knows how to take care of the players you know what does really matter to the players you know a lot of a lot of organizations just throw money at things and i can hopefully help them you know allocate or reallocate you know where these things need to go so for me baseball wise like being a part of that aspect of it, building up the organization, hopefully helping them continue to do well and be a part of winning a World Series kind of on the other side would be fun. Um, and then obviously finding something else to do, meeting people, talking to a lot of people that I've met throughout the years and finding another passion besides baseball because I'm going to have to do do something <laughs> else. I love the game of baseball, but, um, you know, I it's time for me to branch out and find something else I'm passionate about as well. So I think that, you know, it's, it's, it, these are, these are chapters in your life journey. Um, and so you can look back very fondly and, and you look at the relationships that, that you made, look at the success uh, that you had sometimes at the failures too. Um, but for, if, you know, uh, look, I, we also, Ryan lives, you know, 20 minutes from Nats Park and I live 12 miles from CI headquarters. So you're still, you're still in the area. So you run into people all the time. It's almost impossible not to have ties to the place, but you know, one of the things that I looked for was, you know, just again, the next chapter. Um, but what I've done a lot now is, is you know, I, I, you know, I go on TV a lot and talk about national security. Well, you know, that sounds like it's easy, but, you know, it's also there's a million people watching. And so I put myself in crazy uncomfortable situations, which I was not used to. And so when, that's when I talk about, you know, um, you know, you still challenge yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm 53 now, so, you know, I hopefully I have some time left as well. Uh, but but ultimately, it's, it's, it's still trying to do things that are, um, that are a bit uncomfortable, at the, you know, to challenge your mind. Um, and that's because that's what I was, I was used to, you know, one of the things, and I'm sure it's the same as a professional athlete, but for someone, you know, in the CIA or the special operations community, so much of, of who you, you know, it, that becomes part of your identity. And there's a problem with that sometimes. Um, and, and so, and people, cause people, you know, will, will like you, respect you or kind to you or not based on, based on that, that kind of title that you had. Um, but there, again, there is, there's a lot more kind of to life. I missed a lot of my, you know, I missed, I was gone for almost three years in the war zone. So I certainly want to spend time with my family more. My kids are, 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 you know, one's in college and one is, um, is out. My son who's playing junior college baseball. I, you know, I'm heading off tomorrow down to Virginia beach to see him play in a, a fall ball game. And so, um, you know, that's fun that I'm able to do that. I missed a lot of that, but it's, your life has, has different chapters in it. And so it's, it's not putting the CIA aside, um, but it's kind of just moving on to to something else. I, I do rem- I, I clearly remember, you know, this was a while ago. This is when I was in Afghanistan in 2012, flying around. It was, it was in my 40s, flying around in helicopters there, and I'm like, my back hurts. I can't do this anymore. Like there, there's a limited shelf life, and you know you got to kind of hang it up. And um, that was certainly it for me. 
Well, thanks ever so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The Spycast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.